Hello, this is Matt Hale bringing you Art Monthly's talk show on Resonance 104.4 FM. And we're joining the studio today, or I should say I am joining the studio, but there actually is an engineer here as well, so we are joining the studio today, by Professor Chris Townsend, Kate Villevoix, and John Lowe. Hello, everybody. Hello. Now, the link between these three people is that they all are connected to the Royal Holloway, University of London, the Media Art course, and um, John was a student, Chris is the professor, and Kate Villevoix is currently there. Hello, Kate. But I'm just Hello. To ask you, Kate, what kind of work are you making at the moment? Are you you're doing film work? Um, I'm a final year student, so um, I'm just ending my bachelor right now, um, and I'm doing the documentary course mostly, so documentary filmmaker. And John, John when you were on the course and now, what form did your work take? Well, when I was studying, I was uh, making uh, films, but now I'm more interested in doing things online. So, so di- digital, digital, you've moved more to digital. Yeah. OK, and, and Chris, you've, you've taught both these people. Um, For my here? sins, yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm, I, we'll find out how good a job we've managed to do, won't we? But the, we're basically, we're all here today to talk about Jonas Mikas. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Am, am, I, am I? Is that how do you... Mekas, I think. You think Mekas, OK. Yeah. Um, now... He has a show at the Serpentine currently, um, but he also has f- four retrospectives on. I mean, he, he is flooding the market, as you, I could cynically say, but he, he certainly is doing that because he has them in various countries, like Buenos Aires, Paris, um, as well as in London, and the BFI have been showing a lot of his films. Um, what, what I want to ask you primarily, just to begin with, is could you just say why is he getting so much attention? Because... Very cynically, and I don't really believe this, so I'm just saying it as a question to, to get us all going, really. Um, why is the work more than home movie or movies of famous people like Warhol and Lenin? Because he was based in New York and met all these people and filmed them. Um, Chris, just to get the programme going, um, obviously you're going to refute that or explain why, he's, why he is more. Yeah, um... There is a level at which it would be quite interesting to kind of, and quite easy to interpret Mekas as nothing more than kind of court jester to the New York avant-garde in the 1960s and just wandering around with his Bolex filming kind of John and Yoko and often filming Warhol. Um, and when you go into the Serpentine exhibition, it's a little bit dispiriting. You almost think that's what you're going to get because the first thing you do is you get John Lennon's birthday. Um, what a, f- a film of it yeah, happening. Yeah. Um, but why is Mekas more than that? As a filmmaker, because you get this extraordinary body of small, informal, personal films, diary films, that attend to the everyday. Um, for me, I think why Mekas is beautiful and interesting as a filmmaker, he's, he's what we, people talk about cine poems within the avant-garde, and Mekas is a poet in his own right as well. But he makes films that really, in their attention to the everyday, kind of focus on these unexpected little haphazard, beautiful moments, um, rather like kind of, so the poetry of somebody like William Carlos Williams in, earlier in the 1950s, whom probably Mekas would have been familiar with and Mekas would certainly have known poets in the New York scene who were influenced by Williams. So it's it's about that kind of engagement with everyday life and it's very easy if we have this kind of slap on the back, self-congratulatory nature of the art world that, yeah, all he, part of his everyday life just happened to be people who have now become very, very famous 
So it's that, it's that way round as opposed to him thinking, oh, I, I'll become a famous artist if I film these famous people. Oh, I think so. I think Mekas would have been making films whether he knew Ginsberg or Warhol or any of the other bunch or not. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he, he he talks about reality, doesn't he, as as being one of his major interests amongst colour, happiness, living things. Uh, I mean, Kate... T- well, um, I was thinking that he's... Nowadays, he's more relevant than ever, actually, and I think that's why these retrospectives are, are so so good um, at this moment, is uh, because what we were... What we really saw in his films is the um, fragmentation and kind of hybridization of uh, so, so many things coming together. And nowadays, I feel with the internet, there's uh, just a lot of things always going on. There's so much information that you can grasp. And sometimes, for me at least, um, it's, it's quite an overwhelming thing. Whereas he captures it and makes it into something so beautiful. He captures all these little fragments of life and really shows the beauty of those little moments and appreciates them so much that it's just such a positive energy i feel it's so i mean this sounds to me that the the editing and the selection therefore um the selection and then how it's put together in what order and then i believe he also adjusted things like the film rate i.e the mm. speed of the film are crucial to, to to how he turns what we might capture on our mobile phones mm. um i don't I, know if you agree with that john i think if you're going to talk about it in terms of today's films, you have to see the films he was making weren't made necessarily as a film with a title where he was just filming things all the time and then he would edit them into something he could show to people. And so if you link it to now, it's how do, if you're making films or if you're taking pictures, everybody takes pictures all day long, but then you have to share it on Facebook and all that. So what he's about, he's writing you know, articles archiving stuff it's about how do you make things accessible to the outside world now he's doing this as an elderly gentleman and he's thinking about how will these things be shown even when i'm not there but primarily how they would have been shown would have been in his house he's shot it during the day he projects it at night you know this is you know to, to, is, to, to his friends so to his, his friends so his exactly. audience was very very local and he was filming very locally, is, is that right? And then, mm-hmm. but obviously some of those local people were internationally known. Yeah, I mean, the, the then... whole meaning of the local in terms of kind of Bohemia and what constituted the avant-garde in New York in the 1960s is you've got at most 500 people who are involved with that. And yeah, and Mikas's local happens to be, in a sense, not necessarily even his living room, but the filmmakers co-op or the cinematech institutions that he founds for the promotion of avant-garde film. And not just his own film and at all. definitely not just his own film. I think one of the enduring things of Mikash's legacy, as important as these films, will be the very fact, for example, that the very fact that a film like as important as Jack Smith's Flaming Creatures survives is entirely down, almost entirely down, to the efforts that Mikash put in on its behalf in the early and mid-60s, work for which he was subsequently excoriated by, by Jack Smith endlessly, but um, that he made an enormous number of sacrifices, financial, oh, personal, artist, to actually... Yeah, to establish this kind of project. Which may have, may have affected his own output, I, I, do you think? I mean, or, or do you think, actually, that his relaxed filming method actually meant... I mean, he didn't set up... Uh, 
big film sets. He big, very literally filmed, didn't he, when a moment occurred in front of him. Like In his early films, he does start off where he's trying to... It's, it's a whole aesthetic of the new wave and documentary, Robert Frank, Beenix Cinema and all that. But you have it... It's whether it's a style, like an affectation, where, you know, wobbly cameras, or it's just he's just about with his camera and something he likes he films. So it's about spontaneity as a style, or whether it is something which is just, you know... When he's just on on the street. In terms of in terms of that, the the brig is that is that a film which would exemplify the, 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 how that. Well, we, the brig is an extraordinary story, and it is it is a great example. That, just to say that 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 was a film made in 1964 by yeah, by, by Mika. And, and the story behind the brig is actually the brig is in a sense it's a film of a theatrical production. The Brig is produced by the Living Theatre, which is a small avant-garde fringe group in New York, very, very politically critical at a time when, you know, America is a deeply conservative country at that point. And the Inland Revenue Service closes down the Living Theatre's premises. And Julian Beck and Judith Molina, who are the two um, leaders of the group, along with their audience break in to the theatre to stage one last performance. They climb over the rooftops and go in through a skylight to put the performance on. So there's kind of this incredible kind of complicity with actors and audience in the first place. Mikash goes in with his camera and films it, and effectively he's filming on stage as the action takes place around him, and he and the camera almost become part of the drama. So it's an extraordinary kind of blending of stage performance and documentary till the film becomes something else. And the film wins Best Documentary at Venice, I think, that year. But, in a sense, it's more than it's more than a documentary. You're watching a... The- it's a document of a theatrical performance, and it is the theatrical performance. Because it's quite hard to understand how, you know, when people film theatre all the time... Mm. I could but argue that narrative film is nothing but film theatre, if you want. <laughs> well, yeah, but so so it's what I'm really intrigued by is how is it stepping aside from that? I mean, presumably it's a it's a play which is pre-designed and practiced, and there are lines. Yes, so his camera, yeah. his filming has not changed what they said. Can you can you say how you how it actually had? I mean, is the record... Does he film the audience as well as the, yeah, the play? Yeah, so, yeah, for instance, that's yeah. not normally done. I mean, no, but the, the, what you get is the extraordinary... I think The Brig was a play that depended, in a sense, that brought home the degree of kind of violence and an institutional violence within American society, and it uses particularly the, a, a military prison as, the, as a kind of metaphor for that. But what the kind of being able to be up on stage with the actors brings home is a kind of degree of viscerality and brutality that you miss that you miss if you are simply in the audience spectating well i think at that time in theater it was there was also this gear towards spontaneity and psychodrama and stuff like that so if he's he's making a film of this and he's using the photographic image for a documentary record of this this is you know the archival aspect of it but it's also complements his aesthetic what he's trying to do so if you have if you have the next stage from filming theater is to try and take that you know into life as it is actually lived you know that your people in the theater world are trying to uh, 
go beyond theatre. This is the whole point. He's, then, he's trying to help them do that, and in, in a way, would you say, by, so, by the film? So the idea that you have a recording of a play which is itself engaged is like it's a complementary aesthetic rather than it being you know like a, a tv it's not flying it's not flying the wall uh, it, it's not impartial oh no so no. that's that's maybe where it that's, that's the whole thing mm. the whole thing with mercas is that it's it's the filming is like uh you know mind manifestation you know it's an individual Voice, and he's fled from countries where that kind of filmmaking did not exist. So this is what kind of film should be made in the free world, and he doesn't go to Hollywood. That's the important thing. Let's mention Adorno, okay? Because it, 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 you, you, there's a, in a little bit of writing you guys have, have done, which I think is going to appear in Art Monthly's next issue, along with an interview, by the way, with Jonas Mikas. Um, you mention. Uh, I think maybe, Chris, you said this, but basically Adorno seems to... If I, I mean, you'll say it better than me, but very, very quickly, Adorno is saying, basically, you know, after um, Auschwitz, there can no longer be a sort of I, a lyrical poetry about I anymore, whereas we could strongly argue, really, that uh, Mikas, who was in a, a camp in Germany, you know, is fighting to be able to still say I, having someone try to exterminate him. Well, yeah, and I, I think part of that would be my point that um, much as I love and respect Adorno's work in large parts, Adorno makes the statement that there can be no lyric poetry after Auschwitz. And for Adorno, lyric is the ultimate way. This is the ultimate expression of individual autonomous self. This is the unitary individual speaking about the world they inhabit. And he says, after Auschwitz, that's impossible. And there is this degree of which there can be no more notion of this kind of autonomous speech of the self. And yeah, Mikas, anyone who writes a diary, has an imagination of themselves as somehow being still that unitary individual. And I think Adorno... I mean, many people have already argued that Adorno got it wrong in the case, for example, of the great... Um, Romanian French poet Paul Celan, who wrote extensively in, about his kind of the great poetry of the camps, of the death camps, is Celan's work. Um, but with Mikas's experience of being deported from Lithuania whilst, you know, whilst a teenager, working in a forced labour camp in, under Nazism, and surviving, and not being able to go back to Lithuania because, in a sense, already having had the Nazis trying to exterminate his heritage, his culture, he's now got Soviet occupation, which is doing, in a sense, a similar job of trying particularly to erase this kind of very deeply traditional agrarian literary culture that... Um, that Mikas so privileges. I think Mikas has a kind of right to say I. He's actually more than most. He's earned that right simply by the degree to which he's suffered. And I think what I really can say is it's a, the position that people like Adorno take, where you say, oh, we can have no autonomous subjectivity. What it denies is the individual or the oppressed group right of reply against their oppressor. And I think what's interesting that Mikas continually in his career, not only in his own work, but in terms of somebody like Jack Smith, for example, to, keep, to come back to Flaming Creatures, that Mikas's defence of Flaming Creatures is conducted from a point of view where 
in a sense, he doesn't necessarily have any real affinity or sympathy with Smith, other than they're both marginal figures in an avant-garde. You have the, this intensely bizarre, queer man in, Smith, in the case of Smith making these kind of movies that are parodies and love affairs with Hollywood at the same time which are deeply problematic to the American authorities and Mikas conducts that defence almost because it's like actually this guy needs his culture and his essence defending. Yeah so it's a principal thing yeah, As, yeah, and the, yeah. brig, the brig is a similarly another situation yeah. of oppression occurring and, and, Completely. He's, and he's there yeah. again yeah uh, and, and this is probably... I mean, he did... He escaped to to the Danish border. He hid on a farm for two months at the end of the war. He was a displaced person in Wiesbaden and Castle. I mean, he did go through... He went through a lot. And, and lot, somehow, yeah. which I do not quite understand, he managed to go to New York and then borrow some money and buy a camera and not look back. I mean, it's an amazing story, really. And that's why I think what... Um, I, I was, I think... Um, most enthusiastic of how his films are so um, positive in a sense whereas later when I started looking at his poetry it has a much more um, sense of reflection whereas his films are really focusing on the present and he really more than I think a lot of different artists um, he has that kind of American dream the positive well it's very very happy yeah he actually he's very I mean he talks about his show at the same time as being a celebration and Absolutely does not want it to have anything in it that is not mm. happy. Which is, which is, uh, when I first went, I thought, this can't be real. I mean, this is just, this is a fact, this mm. is a. Mm. But it, uh, when I came out, I actually, having watched the long film, which I've name of the big feet film, I can't remember, but it was made specially. Outtakes of the Life yeah, of that. Yeah, I mean, you Life just, you, you just yeah. can't help but like it after, you know, mm. you watch it for 20 minutes and you're just with it. Because it's beautifully edited. That's my, my, my main feeling about it. It's just fantastic. The. It's almost like he uh, has such a hard past that he really feels, okay, I'm not going to let myself um, just be taken by that and just make art that helps him um, ex- express what he what he witnessed there. Uh, it's, it's almost like he's just moved on and only focuses on the present and on the things that makes him happy, kind of bluntly said. Yeah, which is an understandable reaction. Yeah. I mean, mm. talking about um, well, the archiving aspect of his life... And and this, I'd like to try and talk about if we can, just because it, you know, we've, I mean, John's using digital now, was using film. I mean, the, most people are now using digital, and there is this thing of preciousness about film. But there's also, understandably, a lot of people who love it still, and people who are using it more now, maybe who didn't use it, and it's going through a very. But it's basically what Mika, as far as I understand it, is very knowledgeable about is the fact that a lot of art. We only see a fraction of the art of, of history. Much of it has been destroyed, and art is a very vulnerable thing, and, and film is particularly vulnerable, and, and he's tried to preserve it. But equally, I mean, has he used digital himself now? He does a, wear yeah. digital yeah. So he's So he's, he has a love affair with film, but it's not rigid then, so he... But I think he, he always... He'll use the technology if it's available, but I don't think technology in, in itself is that interesting mm. to him. And then it's, he uses things really for how easy it is. So if it's on video, then he doesn't have to, you know, you put it on automatic exposure, you can just wobble it about. And then when you have video as well, you have the, the direct sound. So before when he was making films, he would use, you know, you can have a lot freer approach to frame rate and just shooting individual frames. As soon as you use video, there's a kind of constant speed, there's a direct sound. And so the style does change in his in his later digital films, but I don't think he's. 
I don't think he's embracing digital beyond the fact that this is how most people will consume this stuff. He makes a film one day a year, you know, it's like he's making a vlog every day. You know, this this is the world he lives in. He's got his own website, he distributes stuff, you can buy it all on DVD. But in his latest film, he in, he intercuts images of him editing it. On, he's trying to play up the fact this is I'm like an old-fashioned man. This is my craft yeah, of I mean, editing. I, I don't like the word, but postmodern. I mean, the, the, I, the self, the awareness of the process and himself and revealing that. I just I didn't know what to think about it, but I, I came out of the film really liking the fact that yeah. he did it. it but it, it didn't seem like a kind of cheap postmodern. Well, I don't think that's drop. cheap postmodern anyway. You can look back to a whole tradition in if you go back in the history of painting, you can go back to 17th century Baroque painting, and you'll find. Lots of references to this. Lots of self-portraits of of painters painting themselves, painting a self-portrait. I mean, I'm I'm obviously wrong, which is fine. Um, And indeed, right, you know, the kind of the act of self-reflexivity is, I think, you know, is a common trope right the way in in autobiographical writing, even right the way back. But it was about the poster. I mean, he's showing himself not. He's not showing himself. He's showing himself actually doing the editing. it was a pretty direct reference to the to the process. Yeah, but I think taking up John's point, actually, I think that Mikas. What he recognises is the effectiveness of technology. So, for example, you know, he's wedded to his, for his own films, he's wedded to 16mm, to, you know, to the hand-wound clockwork Bolex from the mid-1950s onwards. When Super 8 is released, he immediately sees its potential. He does this essay that says, actually, Super 8 means that everyone can go around making their own diary and just send it off to be processed and it comes back. You can shoot a film a day of your life. Everyone can do this. You don't need a special big camera anymore. You don't need your own processing facility. And it's as though there, 50 years ago, suddenly everyone has kind of what we now take for granted with a camera phone. So he has to embrace technology now, yeah. really, doesn't he? Yeah. Because it's, yeah. it's, it's just, extend, it's just extended It's just got easier. It's, a different, it's, not, it's not that the technology necessarily means anything. It's just a different platform. I was going to um, talk more about the, the, the archival aspect. I am interested in the idea that he actually spends a lot of time... I think he has different hats. He has many hats, Mikas, doesn't yeah. he? I mean, to be honest, he's not just an artist, and he, and he is a poet. I mean, you mentioned the poetry, didn't you, um, earlier on? I mean, that's a lot about the agricultural change and the change in the country, isn't it, that, yeah. that he's left behind, which which I think is very interesting, actually, the fact that he... But the idea that you can be... And he says he's recognised in his own country as a poet and they don't know why he bothers to make films, and in America, in America he makes films and they don't know why he writes poetry. Actually, did, did he write any poetry when he uh, came to New York? Mm. You mean you think he may have stopped? Yeah, I, I, mm. I do think he stopped, well... Um, okay. Because well, most of his the the poetry yeah that's on his website is all written before he moved to New York, so maybe it is that he as soon as he picked up the camera, um, he wasn't writing as much anymore. But I'm not I'm not actually. But I think he carries on. Maybe it's he can satisfy his instinct with the camera, which is bef- before if if you're in you know a camp and you're just trying to, uh, you all you have at your disposal is is words really. But then if he can. What he does in his poetry, the the the, uh, the idols poetry, the the Four Seasons work, that if he's trying to create images, present tense images, sense captures, you know, the smells, besides, you know, he says all these this this is happening, it's all in the present. But then he interrupts it and says, I remember, you know, being out with old granny, this whatever. But he, what he's trying to do is to evoke these memories 
from when he was a child. Because if he doesn't, if you read it, he, you know, he never engages with the, the men's work, you know, the adult world, the, the life, which he's an educated, you know, he's a, he's, there's a new world which he does not belong to. But he, he, he isn't like an image of, you know... Uh, uh, Mount Helicon, like he, it's work with machines and, and people. That's the point, though. It's populated by individuals, and this is something. If he goes to America, then and he's making films, he's still s- small scale. He's just looking around and filming what interests him. But that you have to see it in terms of the poetry, which was valued then. You know, where it was all about uh, to be spontaneous. And it's supposed to be a, ref- a reflection of ultimate reality. You know, that what was valued in poetry at that time is something which he can convey in filmic images. And that's when he goes to America. When he goes yeah, to can, America. Can, can I come course, in there in the sense course. that I think that, um, that that move is actually very important precisely because yet he's uprooted from this agrarian environment and he's writing this very traditional, seasonal poetry that's grounded in agricultural community and transplanted to New York to kind of the world capital as it were the the ultimate city of the, of the western world at that time and it's in a sense it's about how do you find, almost it's that he needs the camera as a way of kind of finding a way of talking about that of, because the existing the existing technique to use the word to use and particularly to use those kinds of forms of seasonal poetry are not enough. They, 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 or he doesn't understand how they can be adequate. And it's quite interesting that you know I think that he does interact and have close relationships with a number of kind of the really important New York poets of that time, people who are in their own way kind of poetic recorders of urban life somebody like Ted Berrigan for example who comes very much in the Williams tradition of actually, you know, Williams never leaves his hometown of Patterson in New Jersey hardly ever, he's the big, he's the town doctor So very local. And entirely recording the local and recording it in these extraordinary closely observed poems Um, and I think it's that almost that he finds from, from the New York poets how do I ma- how do I manage to actually be a poet in this milieu? And the answer is my camera is my pen here. I think this is also because um, maybe in Lithuania he, in his own language, he seems much more comfortable in expressing himself. And I think there's a lot of problems in translation because if you look at the Lithuanian poets, they're so lyrical and they um, he. Um, Sometimes he has the he uses the same words, and it's just much more beautiful than um, the English uh, words. And I feel like maybe in in English it was much harder for him to to express himself. So well. film film was, yeah, was again another reason. And, and soundtracks wise in his films, I mean they they they're not speech. That's a question. Sorry, a few. Well, yeah. he, you get like little echoes of conversations. I think he's recording direct sound at the same time, but it's not related to the film. You know, it's not actually on on the on the reel. But it's it's from another time from when from the film time, was made. And then yeah. if he's edited another one, he'll be reflecting on it, saying you know. But it will be this triggers something in terms of a memory. But you don't even know what if he's the soundtrack he's using was recorded when he was watching those images anyway. But I, I think we have to emphasize that he's not just making pretty pictures that 
especially in his older work, it becomes more and more about a reflection on his life and the f- lives of the people around him. And he's really commenting about conduct and you know how you present yourself, how to live. Mm. This is it's not just about pictures. Yeah, no, no, that's, yeah, that's, yeah. agreed. And, He's and an also, incredibly ethical artist. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, we're going very close to running out of time, which is a shame because the fragmentary. I mean, I want to talk about the fragment. I mean, it's a very fragmentary presentation of life. Well, it's not. He, he, say, he says that he, he wants to start off and he wants to show the films chronologically, but as he gets more and more material, he can't do this. He just put, edits them as he finds them. But this is linked to how he understands his life himself. That the film and the image overlap. His memory. You know, he doesn't know how to put together his life and so the film reflects that thank you all very much i hope the conversation was enjoyable to you listeners i've enjoyed it a lot that's chris john and i'm going to forget you how to say your your name i'm really sorry villavoir kate villavoir and um this is an interview in with jersey because it's in the february issue of art monthly published very soon thanks for listening used to love me but now I'm what they call an also rare for he's gone potty since he bought a wireless and from that day my troubles they began since my old man's had a portable he's gone completely up the pole all he thinks about is knobs 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 Resonance 104.4 FM, the art of listening. You're listening to Resonance 104.4 FM.